Robert, I've been singing that song, Your Love Never Fails, all week. Have you? <laughs> I wake up in the morning with that song running through my mind. Your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Is that not a wonderful truth to hold on to? You can hold on to that one in life and in death, amen? It never runs out on you. His love never fails. What a wonderful truth. I'm talking about live like you're dying through these days in the Lenten season. And today I want to visit an obscure text in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 49 is where I'm going to be. Last week I was in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 talking about the inevitability of death. And now I want to visit a text that is used six times in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and only those six times in all the Bible. I want to look at it and see what its meaning is for you and for me as we uh, look at Genesis 49. So flip over there. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to read verse 1, and then I'm going to skip to the end of the chapter. In between are the twelve sons being blessed by the patriarch Jacob, whose other name was Israel, for whom the nation was named. And these twelve sons basically become the twelve tribes of Israel. A very historic chapter. Verse 1 says, Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. And so he does. And although some of these predictions that he makes and observations that he makes are not flattering to his sons, like Reuben and others, when he's done with the 12 statements about his sons, they are called blessings. They are blessings from their father. Look at verse 29 of this same chapter. Then he gave them these instructions. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron, the Hittite. The cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron, the Hittite, along with the field. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Gather around. Gather around, he says. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gathered at the deathbed of a loved one? Have you ever been called to the bed? I imagine many of us have. I read this text and think about my own dear father's departure. All of us gathered around his bed singing together for hours and hours as life 
ebbed from his body. Like Jacob, he wanted his sons, his daughters, his family gathered around. We want to be there when our loved one dies. It's in us to be there. If we know, if we can prepare, if they are sick and nigh unto death, we want to be there. That's where the Vandercooks are today. They are in the hospital near his father who's had this terrible and sudden affliction. And he's in ICU and home, and that's where they are. That's where they want to be. That's where they ought to be. We want to be there. Sometimes we stay by the side of a loved one for a long time. And then we have to go to take care of chores because we cannot forever stay by that side. And while we are gone, the person we love dies. That happened to me. I was gone. But we had to attend to another matter. And I sort of regret not being there, but it's okay. Because I knew where he went. And my intention was to be there as he went from this life to the next. And that's our intention. We want to be there when our loved one dies. If we can, if it's possible. We like to be by their bedside. And the loved one wants us gathered around. Jacob does this because with his last breaths, he wants to pass on the blessing. I can't read this chapter without thinking about how important it is for every mother and dad, every grandfather and grandmother in this room to determine in your heart that with your words you will pass on the blessing to your children and your grandchildren because you can pass on the curse if you choose to. And some people sitting in this room feel cursed by the words of their parents who should have blessed them but they did not. Peter talks in one place about the empty way of life. He says, the empty way of life handed down to us by our forefathers. And sometimes that's what it feels like. It feels like an empty way of life, like a purposeless life, like a life without direction. But not for Jacob. Not for this man of faith who wrestled with God and prevailed. He says, God has been my shepherd my whole long life. And he has cared for me. I want to pass on the blessing to you. The blessing of faith in God. The blessing of a companion who is continually with you. Gather around. Come close. When Jacob is first introduced to his grandsons, he never thought he'd see them. He thought Joseph was dead. And lo and behold, he is alive and in Egypt. And then he sees not only Joseph, but his sons Ephraim and Manasseh. And the old man reaches out his trembling hand and in his old age he puts his hand upon those boys. He doesn't do it like Joseph wants him to. Sometimes granddads don't. <laughs> but he wants to put his hand on those boys' heads and pass on the blessing to them. Look, brothers and sisters, let's watch our words. Let's be careful what we say to the children. Let's not tell them that they're nothing, that they can't do anything right. Let's not leave in them a sense that they always disappointed 
that they never fulfilled expectations, that they measured, they never measured up, they never lived up to what they should have. Let's not leave that with them. Instead, let's challenge them with our words to be all that God has called them to be and bless them with our words from the time they are little until the time even they are old. A parent's words mean so much to you, even when you're 50 and 60. And we hang on them. We want to hear them. I bent down to hear my father's last words that he spoke intelligibly to me. I wanted to hear those last words. He said, David, it's not day by day now. It's like Fanny J. Crosby wrote. It's moment by moment. I'm kept in his love. Gather round. Gather the family. Speak the blessing. It is the family gathered here that is the first instruction. Now, Jacob is going to care for things before he dies. He's going to leave instructions about his death. He says to them, I am about to die. Nobody wants to hear that from the loved one. Sometimes the loved one says, I feel like I'm about to die. We say, don't talk that way, even though we know that they are near heaven's door. We don't want them talking that way because we don't want them to give up. But they are, at some point, going to give up. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And sometimes it seems to me that God lets our, our loved ones linger on and on and on because we don't have the faith to release them and let them go. And it's for us that they're staying here till we can reconcile ourselves to their passing. Jacob says, I'm about to die. And he takes care of his last arrangements. This is where I want to be buried. Now, sometimes when you're a young man, you say, I don't care where I'm going to be buried. Just throw my body out under the tree. And we're half teasing, but really it's not dawned on us that there's any importance to our final arrangements. My father was like that. He, in fact, he said those words to us, and then he had a grandbaby die. And he and mom, that's when he and mom bought plots where that grandbaby was buried. And then dad decided he wanted to make some more arrangements. And he told him what he wanted on his tombstone. And he took care of those final arrangements before he died. Even with the physical property, folks, it's wise to do this. Grandpa Rose was so wise to say to his children, I'm going to divide up the inheritance now among you. I'm going to keep a little bit so that me and Cordy Francis can make it. But I'm giving you the rest. And he did it before he died. And there was no fighting over his will, no problems about it. He had decided what he was going to do, and he did it. It is wisdom for us to take care of these things as we age, to put them in our will, to communicate them to our children and our grandchildren. Just as carefully as you prepare for the daily expenses of life, as you go through the budget, as you look at your income and your outgo, so you ought to look at the final terms 
of your property and how your estate will be settled. Jacob does that. He takes care of it right here. Gather around now. I've got some things to say. I'm going to finish this up. And he says to his, to his son Joseph, Do this kindness and faithfulness to me. Bury me in the cave of Machpelah. It's a kindness and a faithfulness. Sometimes when we stand at the graveside of a loved one, we say, what we're doing right now is the last expression of love that we can do for this one we've cared for all his life. With dignity and faith, love and togetherness, we are bringing him or her to the gravesite. And in chapter 47, at the end of 47, Jacob calls this a kindness and a faithfulness to him that he expects his sons to carry out. It's important, all right? Death is inevitable. It is wise to get ready, particularly as you age and get ill. Nobody wants to hear, I'm about to die. But Jacob's family heard it from their dad. Abraham had bought this property a long time ago. The Hittite Ephron had offered to just give it to him. He said, oh no, just give it to him. No sir. Abraham calls a council of the tribe. The Hittites come together. The elders sit in a circle around the campfires, how I envision it. And Abraham says, I want to buy this field along with the cave for a certain price. And Ephraim says, okay, that's all right with me. I'd give it to you, but that sounds like a fair price to me. And Abraham says, okay, we want it recorded. And that becomes the burial site for Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah. And Jacob buries Leah there. And then he himself is buried in that site that he chose. Gather around. Gather up. There is a phrase here in this text I've read to you that says, gathered up. It's that phrase where Jacob drew up his feet into the bed. Okay? Jacob drew up his feet into the bed, and it's the same word for gathered up. Some of the translations have it. He gathered up his feet into the bed. Now, there are a number of terms used here for Jacob as he dies. One of them is he breathed his last. That's how the NIV translates that. You know how the King James translates it? How does it translate it? He gave up the ghost. He gave up the ghost. King James actually translates that, gave up the ghost repeatedly for the patriarchs. He gave up the ghost. He breathed his last. He expired. God took a lump of clay. He worked with his hands and he made it into a man. And then he took the man and he breathed into him the breath of life and man became a living nephesh is the Hebrew. A living soul. There's an animating principle about you that makes you alive. 
feel your breath. You can feel it right there. See, when you die, you take your last breath and you expire. Have you ever heard that? I have heard the last breath pass out of a human body before the person died. He breathed his last and died. The scripture says this of Jesus hanging on the cross. You know the New Testament is written in Greek. The word is pneuma. He breathed his last. He gave up the ghost. Gave up the spirit. The pneuma. Now, Hebrew scholars have looked at this text and had a discussion about it. Because in the first five books of your Bible, you don't see much about heaven or hell or much explanation of the afterlife. And there were some Jews at the time of Jesus who thought that there was no afterlife. But this particular text, gathered to his fathers, perplexed them. Because you'll notice in this text that it's separate from breathed his last and was gathered to his fathers. The phrase gathered to his fathers is used of Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, Aaron, and Moses. There are two of those six that were not physically buried with their fathers. You know who they are? At least two of the six were not buried with their fathers. Abraham, all of his descendants were in Ur the Chaldees. They were buried on the other side of the, of the river. And Moses, his descendants, his fathers, his mom, his dad, apparently they were buried, his, his grandparents, in Egypt. Moses has an unmarked grave. He's buried in a place we know not where. And yet the phrase gathered with to his fathers is used of both Abraham and Moses. So it's not just that their bones are laying in the same place that their father and grandfather's bones are laid. What is this thing, this gathered to his fathers? It is the first indication in the Bible of life beyond the grave, of a future with God. The word gathered is passive here. Jacob gathered his feet into the bed. That is, his feet didn't do it themselves. He pulled those feet into his bed. When you're gathered to the fathers, there's a passive role that Jacob plays as he is gathered to his fathers. Somebody else is doing the gathering, in other words. It's the word for collecting, for putting something together. It's used to describe somebody going out and gathering fruit or gathering berries. And the person who is gathered is in the passive we have here the activity of a God who cared for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when Jacob died, God gathered him to his fathers. Now, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll do what? I'll come again and receive you unto myself. So that where I am there, you may be also. You see what gathered to the fathers is all about? It's about God bringing us into the presence of our believing loved ones. The people of faith who have gone before. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what that term means. That's how I see it. It's different from being buried. They went and buried him later on. But right then when he died, he was gathered to his fathers. Some folks want to empty that 
of a reference to the afterlife and the providence and activity of God in the moment of death, but I don't think you can. That's what it means. He is gathered up by a providential God who made him for himself and brings him to himself. The moment of death must, must surely be a moment of miracle for a believer who passes from this life to the next, who's looking forward to being with Jesus, and you expire. Your last breath passes your lips. I think the first thing you see is Jesus coming to get you. Leon was a one-eyed guy who got beat up in a brawl and lost his eye at a bar. He was humped over and broken up. Rough old codger. When I first went to see him, I was scared to death. He had such a terrible reputation. Somehow he showed up in the circle of our church. I don't know how. And the pastor sent me to go see him. And I thought, why don't you go see him? <laughs> Living out there in the middle of the woods in that country cabin. I went and knocked on Leon's door and his screen door. You know, I could look through there and I looked down there and I saw Leon sitting in the living room in front of his coffee table cleaning his gun. I thought, I don't know if I want to go in there or not. Leon showed up before he was saved and he pulled his jacket back in my office. He had a 44 on his belt. He said, people are after me. I shared the gospel with Leon. He was 60 years old trusted Christ. He received Christ as Savior. We baptized him at the church. And a transformed individual you've never seen the like. What a difference. What a glow. And in his early 60s he contracted cancer. And he was on his deathbed when I saw him last in the hospital in Gladewater. And I went in to see Leon and he whispers to me and he says I saw Jesus said, what? He said, I saw Jesus last night. He said, every time I opened my eyes all night, I looked at the foot of my bed, and there stood Jesus. I say, preacher, do you think that was Jesus? Look, I don't know. You want my opinion? Yes! I think that was Jesus, because Jesus said, I'm going to come back and get you. And I'll bet you Jesus did that just for Leon. So Leon would know in his last days would be peaceful and he would rejoice at his Lord who saved him in his latter years. He was coming to get him when he died. The phrase gathered to his fathers leaves you wondering, well, where is this place where the fathers are if it's not the cave of Machpelah? If it's not just the burial place, which it doesn't seem to be, where is this place? Jesus gave us an answer. He talked about where Abraham was. He had this exchange with the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection or heaven or hell. You remember those guys? They were a sect of the Jews during the time of Jesus. They kind of ran the temple. They didn't believe in heaven or hell, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. Didn't believe in angels. All right? That was the Sadducees. That's why they were sad, you see. Okay? 
And Jesus said in Matthew 22, he said, let's show that verse. Put that verse up on the scriptures. He responds to the, the Sadducees with this verse. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And Jesus was saying to the Sadducees, Abraham is still alive. That's why God uses the present tense when he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This controversy about the resurrection followed the tracks of the early preachers of the gospel. And everywhere they went in Asia Minor, there were some who, like the Sadducees, did not believe in the resurrection. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus wasn't raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we said God raised him from the dead. And it didn't if there's no resurrection. Furthermore, he says, if there's no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised and you, my friends, are still in your sin. The whole plan of redemption hangs on the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus tells a story about two guys. One was faithful. The other was not. The faithful man was a man named Lazarus. He was a poor beggar. He laid at the gate of a rich man begging. And he would have eaten the crumbs that fell from his table that the dogs ate. And no man gave him anything. And then there's this text in Luke chapter 16. Jesus tells the story. The time came when the beggar died. And the angels carried him where? To Abraham's side. That's what Jesus said about the destination of the beggar who died. The angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And then the scripture says, in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And he saw afar off Abraham with Lazarus, the beggar, by his side. Jesus is interpreting for us what it means in the old covenant gathered to his fathers. Father Abraham is not dead, he's alive. He's in a place, Jesus describes as a place where good things happen. Where Lazarus is now comforted, although the rich man is tormented in his place. And there is a great gulf fixed between these two, Jesus says, that no man can pass. The rich man says, well look, send Lazarus back to talk to my brothers if they hear from Lazarus, they'll believe. And Abraham responds, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The rich man says, oh, no. If they had somebody come back, then they'd believe. And Abraham responds, 
Look, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe though somebody comes back from the dead. Here's the future according to Jesus. There's a table where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are gathered. Jesus says of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that those who don't believe are going to be weeping and gnashing their teeth because they will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God while they themselves are excluded. Abraham is in the kingdom of God. He's in the kingdom of heaven. We're going to see him one day as we trust Jesus as Savior. I tell you, I think about this now more than I used to. Now that my father's been gathered to the other side, I think about it. And it is a great comfort to know one day I will see him. You say, well, how do you know what's going to happen to you when you die? John says, this whole gospel I wrote, the gospel of John, is written so that you might know that you have eternal life. It's all written so you might know it. You say, do you believe in heaven? I believe in heaven. I believe God made us for companionship with himself. I talked last week about this wonderful gift of love that we are given from God and to which uh, we can respond to God. We can give this free love back and this love relationship is what God intended and what he enjoyed with, with Adam and Eve before they sinned. And what he wants to enjoy with you is this companionship, this communication. He wants to bring you into his family. And being in the family of God, we are secured not by our works, not by our efforts, but by the wonderful grace of God through Christ the Lord. We are held by his grace. We are in his hands. Jesus talked about it like this. He said, anybody who comes to me, I've got them in my hands and no one can take them out of my hands. My father's got them in his hands. It's like Jesus has got you in his hand and then the father puts his hand over that hand and he says, no man can take them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. We are secure in Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. That's why we're Jesus people. We're Jesus people here at First Baptist. We put all our eggs in one basket. It's his. We're trusting in him and him alone for our future, for our salvation, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but, but according to his grace, he has saved us. He has saved us unto to do good works, but he has saved us beyond any good work we could possibly do through the rescue that he wrought in Jesus. He's lifted us up out of the miry clay. He put our feet on the rock to stay. He planted a new song in our heart. He gave us a new heart. He gave us new words, a new relationship, a new family, his church, and a new home in heaven. Say, preacher, do you believe in hell? Hey, I'm a Jesus person. I believe in hell. I believe there's a place where people who don't want God in their life go and it becomes permanent when they die. They make the decision. They fight God off with their fists all the life long here on this planet. And when they're done, God respects the decision they have made. That's why Jesus paints this place that he says is a place of torment. 
that this rich man cannot get out of because he put himself there by his own unbelief and unfaithfulness. You don't want to go there. Jesus is the preacher who most frequently preaches about hell in the Bible. Usually he uses the term Gehenna, which was the city dump in Jerusalem where they cast all the dead bodies of animals and things and they burned in that fire there and all the refuse and rubbish of the city burned in that crevice that went down the mountain and it was called Gehenna and they said the smoke rose from Gehenna all the time and the fire never went out. It was a dump that burned continually. And Jesus usually uses that word. And some people say, well, because he used the word Gehenna, that means it's not a real place. It was just an illustration on the mountain there. But here in Luke chapter 16, that passage I just read, in hell, he uses the Greek word for the afterlife, Hades. That's in the text. There is one way to find life. And it is in Christ. You can be gathered to your fathers too. Through believing in the one who made you. Who loves you. Who sent his son to die for you. And who wants you at his table in the banquet hall in heaven. And you get there by confessing Jesus is Lord. Believing that he rose from the dead. Receiving him into your life by faith. And you secure a place among the fathers who believed. Let's bow together. It's time to get ready for the inevitable. My brother, my sister. Why live outside of the grace of God another heartbeat? Why not say, Lord, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I want to be gathered to my fathers when I die. To the fathers of faith, I want to be in heaven with you. And I pray that you will come into my life, that you will forgive me of my sin. I give my life to you, and I trust in you alone for my salvation. Would you make that prayer unto God? Lord, I pray today that you would gather somebody into the circle of faith that you would pull a man or a woman, a young person, into the family, prompting them by your Holy Spirit, leading them by your grace as they repent of their sin and trust Christ alone as Savior. Thank you, God, for providing us for us not only now but in a wonderful future, for sending Jesus to save us and so making a way for us to be with you forever. We rejoice in this and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.